All right. Good morning, College Heights. Hey, if you are visiting with us today, we just want to say welcome. We are incredibly glad you are here. Uh, my name is Titus. I am one of the ministers on staff. And uh, I just want to start out with a question. Does it ever feel like sometimes life just grabs you by the back seat of your pants and just tosses you into life's waters? Anybody? Anybody? You know, I, I'm told that uh, that's a great way to learn to swim, but it sounds like a great way to learn to drown. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, how do you weigh those two things? Well, uh, truthfully, I am the family minister at College Heights, and what a privilege and honor it is to be able to walk beside families. I would like to begin by telling you the first time that our family started outside of our marriage. Now, it kind of started like this. Uh, yes, uh, we have a baby boy for you. Now, here's what that means. We had our first child with a three-day pregnancy. Yeah, if you're eight months pregnant out in the audience and are saying, I hate you, okay, I sympathize with those feelings. But for us, it was completely opposite. You see, we didn't have a crib, we didn't have a nursery ready, we didn't have diapers waiting, we didn't have anything. And here in this time, in those three days, we are rushing to finish a home study, to finish paperwork, to get everything lined up, going back and forth among lawyers, where finally we just get to the hospital. We're borrowing a car seat. Uh, we're borrowing clothes. People went up in their attic uh, and things they weren't using and just laid it on our porch. And all these things were happening. And then suddenly, we remember, we finally, ah, we're home. We have our son in our arms. And then this, this thought came across my mind. Oh, no. Somebody's entrusted me with a baby. You know, like... Who would be so crazy to do that? You know, didn't know how to hold a baby, how to feed a baby, upside down, right side up. I don't know. But then, here's the scariest part. You see, my wife was locked in a contract with a school teaching fourth grade, which meant the primary caregiver of our firstborn son was me. <laughs> That was insane as all of this is coming. And I'm just like, oh, man, alive. I'm going to be honest. When we are on the stand completing the adoption, they said, hey, do you promise that you will provide for your son and education and all these things? We had no money in our savings account. So to be honest, I lied and said yes anyway. <laughs> but when it took place, I cannot tell you. What great joy it was in those five months of learning, of struggling, and thinking, I'm caring for a child. But the scariest part of that was, it wasn't learning to feed or hold a baby or, or hugging them or staying up at night. It's suddenly when the thought occurred to me, you will be forevermore guiding this child spiritually. Jim Gaffigan has this great quote that he says, do you know what it's like to become a parent? Just picture yourself drowning 
then somebody hands you a baby. <laughs> yeah, if that's what it's like to care for a child physically, spiritually, I feel like my head's bobbing up and down the water all the time. And then to be grabbing somebody else and say, follow me. That scares me. And so I want to take a moment to be completely honest. When you leave today, you're going to be given three clear thoughts of today's passage. But you and I both know life is far messier than we ever dreamed it would be. And as we look at these principles, which I think are valid, there's also a lot of gray in the area. And even we're going to address a lot of things with parents. But if you're single, if you've already raised your kids, if you're struggling with infertility, if your family has been a mess and you're scared of passing that on, can I say, don't leave yet. Don't take an extended bathroom break. Not because I'm an incredible speaker, but because I think Jesus redefined the family. And that this body, that this church is a family of families. It is a family of community. And in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus' mothers and brothers come knocking at the door and when he's given this lesson, and somebody tugs on his sleeve and says, hey, your family's here. And Jesus turns and says, who's your family? And then it says, and then he looked at those who were sitting around the circle. And he says, my family are those who hear the word of the Lord and follow his will. These are my brothers these are my mothers. These are my sisters. You see, there is an incredible place for us as a church to make a difference in the life of generations to come. But we do it together. What does that take? Well, it takes recognizing that it's far harder than we ever dreamed. Now, before I gave an illustration of drowning, that seems pretty pitiful. <laughs> That's what it's like. Well, I got another illustration, but it may be just as hard. Now, how many of you guys remember riding the bike for the first time? Anybody? You remember where you were? Remember who was beside you? I remember saying, Mom, look as I crashed into a tree. <laughs> I remember it was my cousins who were steering me and pointing me in the right direction. Is Jesus, following Jesus a lot like riding a bike? Maybe. I think it's actually a lot closer to riding this bike. Now, I want you to observe what happens in this bike. When I turn my right, ooh, this bike actually turns left. And when I turn my left, it actually turns right. So I thought about bringing somebody on stage and mocking you as you drove off the front. <laughs> that just seemed not a good idea. But I was able to get our staff in a parking lot. 
And being the good sports and good natures that they'd in, they hopped on this bike and waiting at the 15-foot finish line is a $50 Chick-fil-A gift card. Yes. Uh, let's just watch what happens. so much fun until Flint was a jerk and broke my bike. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Truth be told, what I like about this illustration is this. This bike can be ridden. If ever you watched Destin, Destin Sandler in, in uh, Smarter Every Day, he started riding this bike. It took him eight months riding it five minutes every day before he finally rode it. Why is it so hard? You think in our minds, we just make one little switch, right? You turn right when you want to go left. But you see, actually, it's way more complex than that. Because you're balancing. You have trained your body how to feel the motion and what to lean into. And when you turn, you lean into that direction. Not when you turn right. Everything is backwards when you're, you're trying to get this thing to work. The reason why the handlebar broke, it wasn't because of our last rider. It's because people were grabbing that so hard, trying to jerk it and yank it, and hopefully that they can submit it and going to the right direction. But you see, when I think of this bike and I think of what it means to follow Jesus, every natural inclination within me When it comes to following Jesus, I actually do the opposite. You know what I mean? Are you there? When Jesus says to love your enemies, oh no, I want to pulverize them. But following Jesus means I do something else. I want to lie to make myself look better. I want to take care of my needs, not look after the needs of others. I don't want to take up the cross daily. I want, to, I want to be selfish. I want my own motives, and I want, I want to keep my money. I want to keep my time. I want to love the things that I love and not have to worry about anything else. And you know what? If I thought for just one moment that that would work and bring happiness, I may just do it. But we're broken. And all along, it's so difficult learning what it means to follow Jesus. But if we don't enter the picture, 
if we don't have the conversations, our culture is excellent at making disciples. They're excellent as, as we watch movies, as we listen to music, as we read a novel, as excellent as we watch politics unfold before us. It's fantastic. And all that they do and all that takes place, the teachers are education. And I'm not saying all of those things are bad. I'm saying that we are one voice. And so many other voices are teaching the next generation how you live in this world and what really works. And it seems sometimes overwhelming. And truth be told, in leading the next generation and leading my family, I've done it so poorly sometimes. I carry my guilt, my anger, dumb things I have said, hurtful things I have done. And I'm supposed to be the one, and you're supposed to be the one bringing others beside us and says, this is what following Jesus looks like. I'm incredibly grateful for our text today. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and why I think it is incredibly important, not just for the words, which are simply powerful in themselves, but I also want you to think about what is taking place in the lifetime of the Israelites in their history. You see, they've just left Egypt. For 440 years, they've been suppressed in slavery by the Egyptians, and now God has given them their freedom. And now they're learning what it looks like to follow after God, to love him. And so God is having this training moment. He's having this, let me walk beside you. So that in verse 2, he says, so that you, your children, and your children's children will learn what it means to fear and follow the Lord. I look at that and hear that story. I'm saying, we're, we're in similar boats. So what's that look like? How do we do it? Can we take a look at this passage together? We'll be starting in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in just two verses, 4 through 6, to start out with. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Have you heard those words before? These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Wow. What does that mean, though? Can I begin by saying this? I know it says, here's the matter of fact. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Have you ever commanded somebody to love you and see how that's worked? <laughs> right? Maybe sometime early in the dating life, you just want to say, love me, will you? It doesn't work that way, though, does it? No, actually, when it says love the Lord, you're assuming it's a response. 
You're assuming that saying, hey, in the way that God has loved you, love him. And what does that love look like? Well, when Moses goes to teach, he says, it looks a lot like this. Love him with all your heart. Now, I know when we hear the word heart, we automatically think of passions, of desires, of emotion. But actually, when a Hebrew thought about that, they were thinking, love him with the center of your being, where your heart is. Make that the focal point. And it's actually not the emotions and passions. It's actually the head. It's actually the thought and your thinking process. And you do it with the center of that being. I mean, you just don't do things out of sheer passion. But you do it in response to recognizing, what am I doing? What's taking place? And then love him with your soul. What's that mean? Sometimes the word soul can be translated breath or life. And actually, if there was a word picture to it on your body, it would be your throat. Why? Because when you're hungry, all food goes through the throat. When you take a deep breath, all air comes through the throat. And when you are thirsting, you drink. The throat is actually the passageway of life. So maybe a better way to say this is love him as when you ache for hunger. Love him as living in a parched land and you're thirsty for water. Love him as you're desperate for air and you gulp for it. And love him with your strength. Love him with your physical might. Make every effort to love him. For anybody who's been in love, you understand. Everything follows love. I asked some professional preschoolers of, hey, what are things that your mom loves? What does your dad, what does he love? Moms, they said, you love drawing. You love kisses and hugs. You love her bed. <laughs> Every mom says. You love bunnies and taking me to grandpa's house. You love when I listen to you. You love flowers, you love singing, and you love my shoes. One poor distorted girl says, you love the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> I don't know. I made that up, by the way. Dads, you love playing Mario with me. You love when I sing. You love snuggling with me. You love building things. You love my mom and me. You love going to work. You love the rain because it makes things grow. And you love Komodo dragons and platypuses too. 
You know, I'm not sure how accurate those responses are, but can I say this? Kids have watched. Kids have observed. Kids have listened. And to their greatest level of how they process input, our kids tell us what we love, which is rather frightening. According to the book Sticky Faith by Dr. Kara Powell and Chap Clark, in a survey that was done by Notre Dame University of 3,290 teens, they were looking for trends of things in which, hey, how is the next generation receiving faith? What are contributing factors in their growth? And here's the conclusion of the survey. They said most teenagers and their parents may not realize it. But a lot of research and sociology of religion suggests that most the most important social influence in shaping your young people's re religious lives is the life modeled and taught to them by their parents. Now the book goes on to say there's no magic equation. If you're looking for one, you'll never find it. But in these trends, here's the conclusion of the best research. When it comes to kids' faith, parents get what they are. Can I rephrase that? Parents get what they love. So what do you love? How do you spend your time, your energy, and passion? What do your conversations reflect around the dinner table? Would any of our kids ever to answer the question, my parents love Jesus? But what do you do to make a difference? Yeah, I know love can be expressed in a lot of ways. But how about this? Can we say it like this? Make the most of small moments. So, let's look at the passage. Beginning in verse 7, it says this. Impress them, meaning the commandments and statues. Impress them on your children. How do you do that? Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Are we really supposed to write these things? Do I need a tattoo on my forehead? What do they mean? Can I simplify a little bit to say, make small moments matter? They're saying, when you walk along the road, when you walk along the road, they walked along the road all the time as a part of daily life. When do you get up in the morning? When do you go to bed at night? When do you have a meal together? When do you watch TV together? How do you process a movie? They're saying, make everyday moments count. You see, if we're looking at having one conversation before our children or before somebody who accepts Jesus, uh, in baptism, if that's the focal point, if that's the only conversation, 
That's about as crazy as saying having the sex talk teaches a child everything they need to know about sexual discipleship. Is it even possible to talk about what takes place in the body, what a hormone does to the mind, how our thinking is distorted and maneuvered and shaped? Is it any one conversation that you can talk about the dangers of what takes place or how our culture views us and makes disciples? And the answer is please. I'm so glad if you have the courage to have the talk, but don't make it one talk. Make it a constant evaluation, asking questions and listening and learning. There's many times I've thought this chiseling has taken heart. Why do I use the word chisel? Because of this. When it uses the word impress upon them, there actually is a word that, a word picture that gives the, the picture of somebody grabbing a chisel and a hammer and just going to work on rock. That it's the shaping of our life doesn't take place in a ta-da, snap your, femur, snap, snap your fingers moment. But no, it takes place in more of a gradual process. How about this? Making moments matters looks like this. Paul David Tripp says this. He says, very little parenting takes place in grand significant moments that have stopped us in a track and commanded our full attention. Parenting takes place on the fly when we're not really paying attention and we're greeted with things that we did not know we were going to be dealing with that day. It's the repeated cycle of little unplanned moments that is the soul-shaping workroom of parenting. And if you're not a parent, you substitute the word disciple-making for every time it's used. It's a gradual, continual process that we have natural moments and trust that God is always at work. I know, it's intimidating. It's intimidating when we lose our temper at one moment and it seems so wrong when we go to the table to pray the next. But when we're real, we realize that we're all in the single same situation of saying that God's grace is sufficient for me and even in my faults and weaknesses, I'll continue to point to him over and over again that God may grasp the heart of my children. And if you need help, that's a large part of what our youth and children's team do. Can I say this today that your kids, your younger kids in elementary, they're going through and they're studying 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah and how God provided for the widow. So when you go and pick up your child, you're given a fridge sheet that has the passage of scripture that it's listed. 
It has the discussion that they're learning. It has the focal point or scripture that they're trying to put into memory. Let the church be a part of your child's journey. Take the sheet out on the way home. Pull it out at the breakfast table. And let your children be the experts of what they've learned. Or perhaps provoke their thinking when you ask them, what did you learn at church today? And they say, I don't remember. You're in good company. If your children are in middle school and they were here at the 9.15 hour among their group, they talk about big questions, big answers, and deep thoughts. They've just discovered and thought about what is prayer? Why is it important? How does it change things? Does it change God? If your high school students came this morning, they talked about how following Jesus impacts how we spend money. Those are big questions. How many of us had those conversations in our home? Do we leave it up solely to the church as we're going to drop them off at the front door? Hope the church does. Hope the children's and youth program does what the church was meant to do. A family's within a family. Sounds pretty clean, doesn't it? Love God. Make small moments matter. But then we come here. And here is where real life comes in direct contact with our spiritual journey. Look at verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders. Why is that so significant? Because he says, tell a story that gives your faith eyes to see. And when we talk about the Hebrew family, we're not talking about just a mom and kids or dad and kids or a nuclear family as it's been defined. But it was an extended family, a community. And think about grandpa coming in among and sitting among the kids or grandma and they begin asking him, so what was it like in Egypt? And talking about the hard labor and all that was taking place, the whips laid upon the backs of what they saw when God experienced and broke out their rescue attempt of how he led them by night with a pillar of fire and by day with a pillar of a cloud. How the sea was parted. you think ears would perk up and listen. And when I heard that, as the Hebrews tell there, salvation story it made me wonder about ours as we celebrate Christmas as God came crazily as a baby 
born to a young mother named Mary. How that child grew in the same world that we grew. I began to teach and show us what following God really was like and answered the question, what is the greatest commandment? And then showed us what it meant to love my neighbor as myself. And then just like that, he stretched out his right arm. He stretched out his left and was nailed to a tree. But the tomb could not hold him. And the disciples, not even expected it, found themselves in the presence of a risen Savior. The story of stories. But that story is but a hope in the midst of yours. And when I came down to this part and realized how stories made a difference, many of your faces over the last 12 years have flooded my mind. And I just wrote them down. And I said, I know it doesn't give justice, but can I take two or three sentences and can I share with the church your stories? Terry and Carol, some of the hardest days of being a parent was watching their daughter, Crystal, as a time and a teenager rebelliously sprinting away from the Lord fearful, angry, and taking every step further and further from Jesus. Oh, sleepless nights, hard times and trials. But then Crystal's relationship found her way home and long ago has found a love of God, a renewing relationship with her parents. And that has been restored and she shows others what it means to follow Jesus. I think of Shane as a child who was six, was sexually mistreated and abused at the hands of a trusted neighbor, one paid to keep him safe. In years of silence, he broke it so he could be whole inside and help others do the same. I think of Jody, who last August lost her husband, Jerome, when he collapsed, his heart gave out from a long birth defect. And the overwhelming loss, the constant void presence of having him gone and a family having to figure out what it means to live life without him and the girls live without their dad. Oh, they're still finding their way. But now they do so with so much more hope and promise. I think of 12 years ago this month of Caleb and Vanessa when they had to say goodbye to their one-year-old daughter, Lola. Imagine that the time God's goodness felt more like a mirage in a desert. But they wanted to know even in the midst of their pain, the hope they have and they wanted their other daughters to understand that the gospel is true. And so on that tomb is written, 
we live with a wonderful expectation because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3. I think of Chantel, who often can't get up in the mornings. Her body is cruel. She just doesn't have the strength emotionally. And yet, as I watch her, she's the first one we call to ask for prayer because she has sympathy for the suffering. I think of Brian who pursued and justified a relationship outside of his marriage. But faithful friends gathered around him and Jody. Yeah, the path of forgiveness, it was walked and still being walked. Trust was rebuilt. But now he walks with men trying to make their own way with sexual brokenness. I think of Bo, who as a teenager described himself as a rebellious punk. And I remember many years ago saying, hey, what was the turning point? And he says, well, first of all, I think the prayers of my mom played a significant piece of my heart being restored to the Lord. And on a night when I was rebellious, I was drunk, I was lonely, and I turned to the heavens and said, God, you promise that if somebody pursued you, you would reveal yourself. And he said, I started following him and I haven't turned back again. I think of Josh and Kayla, adoptive parents, and they still find themselves not knowing what all to do, but they are refreshingly honest with their struggles and failures and are willing to share what they have learned with others along the way. I think of Brandon and Amanda who were lovers of Jesus but were struggling to really love one another. Marriage was falling short of their expectations and neither one had the fight to continue. But when they started being honest about their struggles, they developed an, a renewed empathy for one another and so very slowly and gradually found themselves dying every day for Jesus and for one another. And I think of Hope, who two years ago at a high school MOVE conference stood up among the hundred and some students that were there and among our group. And she said something like this. By the way, Hope lost her dad, Mark, before she was born, grew up not knowing her dad in person. And she stood up in front of the group and she says, Today, I am learning to love all of God. And today, I accept him as my father. Oh, church. You and I know that two or three sentence summary don't do justice to the complexity of such circumstances, of these or of yours. Of unwanted divorce, infertility, false accusations, severed friendships, divided families, unrelenting addictions, struggling attractions, untold secrets, and every single story that doesn't live, doesn't end with, and he or she lived happily ever after. And trying to make sense of all of these things and all of these stories. What do we do? We point to the story of stories. 
that when Jesus saw us, he may not enter every one of our needs and wants and rescue us, but he took care of our greatest need, a need for a savior, a need for a pathway of unity with God. And his name is Jesus. This morning, we're going to experience that as a family. And before Jesus went upon that cross, he gave the church, he gave his people something for us to remember his story. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup of wine and he held it up and he says, renew, remember this, drink it, and remember the covenant of my blood that is offered for you. When our children and youth get together, they're told a phrase, Jesus died in my place for my sins and rose again to bring new life with God. You see, that's one thing to know it. And we experience and we see the cross. But if you keep your stories to yourself, if you don't have the courage to share them around tables, about yes, of our faithfulness and how God provided, but so much, so much also for our failures that we've let things slip. Then we have neglected to give the next generation eyes for their faith. As we come and break this bread, simply invited to come when you are ready. And can we do it as a family? Meaning, I know some of you are stuck in the middle. Just crawl over people. We don't care today. And we may come and break this. You may want to get together in groups. You may want to invite other people, strangers you don't know, because we are a family of families. Remembering the greatest story. And I also want to invite our prayer team, if you're willing, during the time we take communion and even beyond into the songs, would you be available that we can lift each other up? Oh, that the next generation may see Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you, oh God. And yes, we remember Jesus, and yes, we remember the hope we have in the midst of our stories. Unite them today. In his name we pray. Amen.